The Starbucks Pistachio Latte will transport you to your happy place. The comforting flavor of pistachio, warm espresso and milk, all with a brown buttery topping. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Welcome one and all to the Music Buzz podcast. Dean Clark, Hugh Simon, Andy Wilson here with you. Very excited about today's episode because we get to talk about ourselves. And who doesn't want to talk about themselves, right? So we get the opportunity to talk to you about our histories in the music business. And the whole point of this podcast is, number one, we all like to talk. We like to tell stories. And we like to kind of go down memory lane and every once in a while you know, uh, something interesting comes about. And so as we make our way through this podcast over time, we're going to talk to a lot of people we admire, people that have written amazing songs that have just done amazing things in the business. And to start it off, we thought, hey, let's just talk to each other and kind of get some stories out of each other first before we launch into talking to our guests uh, that will be appearing in season one, two, and so on and so forth. So without further ado, we're going to kick this thing off by talking to the one and only Dane Clark, who's history in the music business behind the drum kit behind, you know, many great songs, uh, most notably as John Mellencamp's drummer um, in the John Mellencamp band since 1996. Hello, Dane. How are you doing today? Very good, sir. Good, 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 good. And joining us as well is world-renowned graphic artist and musician, Hugh Syme. Hello, Hugh. Hello. How are you? Good. So, we're coming to you from Indiana, USA. Let's kick this thing off, the Music Buzz podcast. Talking to Dane. Let's dig into your history a little bit. And All right. We're going to talk about, you know, your first band. We're going to talk about some of your favorite album artwork, your first gigs, so on and so forth. So, let's dial awesome. way back. In the early Dane Clark years, tell us about your first band. Go back in the time machine a little bit. Well, actually, I put a band together. I, I started playing piano when I was in third grade and guitar very shortly after and drums maybe a year after that. So I was the one guy in school who kind of knew how to play everything. I could read music. Uh, I had all, you know, I was already kind of starting to collect records and stuff. So I actually put together a band for my sixth grade talent show. So that was my first band. Mm-hmm. 
I wrote a song called I'm Gonna Miss Her. It was really memorable. Um, I taught everybody how to play their little part. There was a guy that played the trombone. And bum, 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 was this written for a specific girl that you were missing? I, gee, not yet. Uh, I think okay. I was just copying a very early Beatles thing. But I played drums and sang, but I didn't have a bass drum pedal yet. So I don't. if I had to go back and hear that, I wonder what that really sounded like. Wow, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was a guy that... Two guys had guitars, and one guy, and everybody just played the melody. Okay. But I showed everybody how to do it, so I organized it. So I already kind of had a thing where I got us in the talent show, I organized it, and we lost. Oh, well, hey, you didn't have that bass <laughs> drum. That's why you lost. So um, how, I, how, did you, how did you learn to play the drums? Like, where, when did you start? When, did you have a teacher? Did you teach yourself? I did. Yeah. Well, I basically, uh, in fifth grade, I started taking, you could, you had to play flutophone, was what they called it back then, melodica. And everybody had to play this instrument. Boy, I bet that was a fun job for somebody to have to listen to people going, ooh. On those things, but we, you know, you did that for the first half of the year, and they said, "Hey, if you liked music, why don't you pick something else?" And I had already learned how to play guitar and piano, and I was still taking lessons on piano. Took two lessons on guitar, learned a couple of chords. So I said, "I want to play the drums." So um, I had a really great teacher. Gosh, I wish I could remember her name, but she she was taught me how to play the rudiments. Mm -hmm. And um, which I can attest to the rudiments work is one of my my oldest son actually taking the lessons from Dane, and uh, you know he, he he learned some of those rudiments from you. I would assume they came back. Uh, from many years ago, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean it's the mo everything's based on your single stroke roll and your long roll, double single strokes and double strokes of in various combinations, of course. But so I started there, and it took me about a year and a half to convince my parents to get me a drum set. So at that point, I wasn't. I mean, I was still taking a snare drum lesson, but that didn't have much to do with playing a set. So I just basically got out there and just banged around and tried to figure it out i remember the very first song i tried to figure out though i couldn't have picked a more complex one was the first song on the first led zeppelin record good times oh, bad geez. times you know so i'm trying to use my left foot i'm trying to do that double bass thing so actually i think i developed my foot technique that i still be it good or bad right way back then because okay. I do a strange thing with my bass drum foot from trying to learn how to play that lick when I was right. a little kid. So that's how I started. Awesome. That's great. So moving along. So, the, you know, we're, we, in this podcast, we talk about, you know, the musician side. We talk about the live side and we talk about the the visual side and sure. uh, the reason we talk about those three things is because it kind of represents the three of us and, and our experience in the music business and so moving right along here talking about the design elements and you know i think in this world of digital music um you know the design elements that we remember when we would go to a store and buy an album you know even buy a cd um to me and i think you would agree with this guys that you know the visual of the album that's the first impression i mean that's kind of like you know uh, the beginning right and when i think back about the albums that influenced me a lot of times the reason they influenced me out of the gate was because of the record cover and so sure. you know and obviously hugh is one of the most well-known guys in the business to design record covers and and 
And um, so part of what we want to talk to people about is that aspect, which I think gets overlooked sometimes just in general, because everybody wants to talk about the songs or the famous songs or the hits to, to people. Right. Well, so especially us, now, since yeah. nobody, because you don't have real albums or mm-hmm. even even a CD to look at, I still order them. But. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's it's amazing to me that even in this world, though, when you look on Apple Music or whatever, the artwork still it still needs to be great because that's what makes it stand out. As you're flipping through all this stuff, well, you true. notice it when it's great. Right. So, what are some album covers and artwork, Dane, that stick out for you um, as a fan over the years? Like, what are the ones that really stick out? That as a yep. fan and then also of albums that you played on um well i would say as a fan sergeant pepper always comes to mind i mean mm-hmm. you, i remember seeing that i actually had a mono version of that when it first came out i was seven i was buying records at seven i i'm not sure what was wrong with me but there i was doing it mm-hmm. and but i remembered on that thing and i was trying to figure i didn't even know who most of those people I wasn't aware of a lot of those folks on that cover but i was just so intrigued by it ah, welcome the rolling stones and there's the young beatles looking mm-hmm. at you know over here and and then then i started reading i was i guess i was already starting to read was was crawdaddy magazine and cream magazine about oh that's marijuana leaves over there on the guitar and all that stuff and and you know the pictures on the inside of it and then the outside the back side of sergeant pepper had all the lyrics on it nobody right. had ever done that before that i that i can remember oh is that right i didn't realize that okay i think that might have been the first record ah. that actually had lyrics on it like that and uh and then the stones the same year that had their ideal like that with the 3d cover wasn't as good a record the, the satanic majesty's record right um it had some good songs on it but it was a sarge pepper but uh that was kind of their little trippy thing and when it was it was really avant-garde when you opened it up and saw if i can't even really remember what it was but i remember it seems like i remember on the front keith richards having a, a, i just remember those pointed hats that were just like look ridiculous you know yes, i mean they just but he had the silly. finger on uh, he had a shirt with a button and somebody was given the finger on it uh, of course which was after the first moby grape record where don stevenson my friend in compadre in music had his finger lowered on a washboard as a joke mm. and that they had to uh airbrush off after right. they'd already did a little like, work on it yeah, yeah they like <laughs> got there's fifty thousand of them that got out and everybody went oh no we can't have Whoops. that so if if you got a later copy of it you didn't get his finger down there right airbrush that bad boy off so tell us about like the first paid gig that you had dane you know, where you really kind of walked out like, holy hair, dude, I just got paid. You know, kind of that feeling. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that? Or I, what was it? I do. I was 15 or 16, and, you know, I had a little garage band literally that i i used to had my drum set up in my parents garage and i played in the, in the neighborhood every night till it you know with cops after we turned up a little later down the line i was getting the police called on me a lot at this point i was just banging around out there and somebody knew somebody and some band was playing some old country band the fellers that were i say old they're way younger than me at the time i'm sure but they looked old to me and uh they said well i heard you can play the drums well I, thank you sir he said well, you want to come play tonight i said well, sure so uh, they came and picked me up and uh i did have a driver's license um, but i remember they came and picked me up and i put my set of drums in there and we went to this place and it was called the shag room and it was in newcastle 
I hey, wonder if it's go. still there. Yeah. Now, I've got to tell you, I've got a funnier one. When I was just a few years older, I played my first Elks Club. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that uh, organization, but at 11 o'clock uh, every Friday and Saturday, or I can't, maybe it's every night, or I'm not sure, but they have a tolling of the uh -huh. bells for their brethren that have passed on. And it's supposed to be a somber moment, but I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I, just thought, I didn't know anything. The guy, so a guy comes up to me and he goes, hey, our bell's broken. And I thought, well, what's that mean? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, look, when I point at you at 11 o'clock, I want you to hit your symbol 11 times. I said, okay, great. So, and none of the other guys in the band who are all older than me uh, were around when this happened. And they would have probably told me what was up, see. So we're playing, we're playing songs and stuff. And it comes to 11. Well, place got real hushed. And the guy looks and he points at me and I go, ding, 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 ding. I was supposed to go, dong, dong. I had no idea what they were going to do. And it was like the whole room staring at me. The guys in the band are just, they're looking at me like, we're not even going to get paid tonight. And I'm just like, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know. That's great. It was supposed to be a somber, dong. That's great. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about some of the biggest, you know, and most influential shows that you personally played on or people you played with, stuff like that. Like, sure. You know, kind of that moment where you're behind the drum kit looking out at the crowd and being like, I can't believe I'm playing drums right now. <laughs> well, there, there's been a multitude of those moments. Um, but I would have to say um, one of those moments certainly is every time that I've played the Ryman Theater. I mean, that's just hollowed ground. It's um, the last time we were there, we played two, a couple of years back now, I guess. Uh, we played two shows, or maybe it was just last year. Uh, we played two nights consecutive, and sometimes you get, sometimes you don't. But I had my own dressing room, which happened to be the Johnny Cash room. Nice. And it was just like, I remember it was the first time I ever got on Facebook and said, I, I'm not one to just brag about, oh, I'm on tour and here's, here I am. Mm -hmm. But on there, I said, you know what? This is pretty cool. My first mm -hmm. Facebook face, uh, post, um, I'm playing with John Mellencamp and I've got, I'm here. I've got the Johnny Cash room and this is my office for the next couple of days. That's I awesome. said, I'm very blessed. Yeah. It was incredible. Um, another one, probably another one of the very coolest things I ever did was it was a uh, benefit concert for Timothy White, who was a rock journalist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was for his family. He died suddenly. And gosh, all the people that were there, Sting, Brian Wilson, Roger Waters, Don Henley, Cheryl Crow, uh, us, James Taylor. I'm forgetting people, but the last song of the night, uh, I was part of the rhythm section. I was playing drums on this land is your land. And all those people all came out and sang a line on that. Mm. And here I am. So I'm literally playing for sting comes up and sings Roger waters, who by the way, lower lip was quivering. Cause he was so nervous. I'm going, wow, man, it was really wild to see this. Uh, and uh but everybody was kind of nervous not knowing you know oh there's my line and you know that how that stuff can be yeah um so that was really cool but the really the most important and 
uh, heartwarming and heart-wrenching thing I ever did was to play the concert for New York City. That was yeah. month after nine. That 11. was cool. That was a great show. The the Who. I remember the Who is killing it. That I night. saw that. I saw the whole show from the side of the stage. I watched. The, I got to see the Stones and the Who, who actually played before we did. So they they were our opening acts. So the so the Who opened for you basically. <laughs> the Who and the Stones opened for us, and. Uh, uh. That's one way to look at it, I guess. But no, the the Who were incredible that night. I mean, I just it was the last yeah. time that John Entwistle ever played in America. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! That's, wow, that's yeah, awesome! Fantastic, fantastic. All right, well, thank you, Dane. So, switch gears, uh, Hugh. We're going to shine the spotlight on you now. Well, Hugh, tell us uh, tell us about your first band. My first band. Well, speaking of drums, I I, I lived in England from '64 uh, to '69. My father was in the pulp and paper industry, and uh, we all moved to England, the north of England. It wasn't as sexy as living in London or or somewhere like that, but in the north, I mean, there's a lot of good bands like the Animals and Sting came from Newcastle. You know, lots of uh, good people came from there. But um, down the uh, I was a big fan of the Beatles, as everybody was, and I wanted a set of Ludwigs, and they were from Chicago by the time I lived in England, so they were too expensive. So even though I had taken piano like you did from age five, in my case, I took nine years of piano, um, I loved the drums. I just loved you know rock and roll, and not being able to afford the, uh, the, the Ludwig drums uh, my father and I went shopping, and I found this kit called Premier. And I realized by watching Ready, Steady, Go and Top of the Pops in England that there was no shame in playing Premier because it turned out that Keith Moon and Jim yep. McCartney played Premier drums. So right. with that kit, I played with uh, a local – I was 13, cutting my teeth on Newcastle Brown Ale, and with a very forgiving and, and, and sort of liberal father who was smart enough just to say, yeah, he'll – He'll find his way. So I played in pubs and they knew I was underage and we did cover songs like heart full of soul and hurdy gurdy man. And so on. So I was, awesome. I was keen on all those. I was a big Kinks fan, big Beatles fan. Um, I'm surprised you didn't mention Dave Clark. Cause I just thought he was pretty cool. Even though he was just kind of a mascot. Um, but yeah, that was my first band, just kind of a small cover band in England. And then I didn't think about playing in a band until much, much later. And after leaving university, I was at CBC radio doing some uh, piano and keyboards on Crawford and Wickham. And they were kind of like a Seals and Crofts. They're really good guitar players, really good singers, very tight. And uh, they wanted some piano. So I played with uh, them on a recording at CBC radio and their studio um, producer was Ian Thomas brother of comedian writer um great white north dave thomas also an alumnus from second city in toronto um you know and and it was that alumnus that gave us you know john candy and andrea martin and cashier right so um being in that session and having ian say i I wrote a song on a dare called painted ladies because i said there was someone had said there's quite a formulaic sound to america and uh Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and he said, yeah, and Neil Young, too, to some degree, but the harmonies were something that he said, I could do that, and he did a song called Painted Ladies that haunted him for the rest of his life, despite the fact that we as a band got much more progressive, and we were much more interested in 10CC, Supertramp, and bands like that, and Steely Dan, of course, Um, so 
he asked me to join the band and I, you know, I was a huge Moody Blues fan. So I walked in and there was a Mellotron and oh, Fender, nice. Fender Rhodes and a clavinet. Cause that song painted ladies was, was based around a clavinet. Um, and uh, so I was in sort of over my head, to be honest with you, the, the two players that had been playing with Ian from a band called Tranquility Bass were huge. Yes. Fans. And they were very technical. And my interest was much more arrangemental. Uh, my background was not quite as as bluesy and as rock oriented as the rest of the band, but that served well because Ian and I had a really good uh, connection when it came to arranging a lot of the music for his projects. Um, How long yeah. were you in the Ian Thomas band? Seven years. Yeah. Okay. We, yeah. When, when did that start? What time frame was that? Seventy four, maybe. Um, okay. 73 or four and it went through to the early 80s so yeah um and we happened to be managed by this is an intentional segue but we were managed by ray daniels right. who also who also managed kim mitchell and a, a phenomenal band called max webster and uh, this other band called rush <laughs> and and also larry gallant who now sings with sings and plays for sticks um and we were all on the same label and on the strength of that, I was called in, and I had done some covers for Max and for Rush. Uh, no, I beg your pardon, for Ian Thomas. And Ray asked if I'd like to do a Rush cover. And I remember thinking, yeah, they're not Steely Dan or they're not Super Tramp. Sure, I'll give them a shot, you know. And <laughs> that was good that you did, yeah, I think. It worked out pretty well. It <laughs> <laughs> worked out well. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it wasn't my intention to be a part of the, that part of the music business, but I'm so glad I did because we ended up. You know, we ended up opening for people like Robert Palmer, Roxy Music, the Beach Boys, who I was a huge fan of. Yeah. Um, you know, Al Stewart, uh, Renaissance. It was a really, oh, wow. yeah, really interesting. Uh, Billy Joel at Massey Hall, you know, we got to open up for Billy. Hmm. That's so, quite yeah. a mix of, uh, eclectic yeah. mix of artists, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and even though Roxy Music was held up at the border and the audience, it was Massey Hall, it was like 2,200 people, even though the audience was getting antsy, you know, Toronto's too polite to get belligerent, um, you know, it was great to go on and find that the, the audience, you know, really embraced what we were doing because, you know, even though I sound like that guy, that, that old guy that said, yeah, we're pretty good. Well, we, we were actually pretty good. So but how I'm sure you guys were. How do you see that seven years being in a band, touring, you know, kind of the experience of being a musician? How did you see that kind of, you know, parlaying itself into being the graphic designer for so many well-known musicians? I, I, I got to believe, believe that that foundation, being a musician and kind of slogging it out in the clubs, had to really play a, a role in, in that, yeah. right? I think unwittingly there was kind of an osmo osmosis factor there. I, I didn't mm. think about that connection. I just, you know, we all love the music business. You know, we were in this field because we enjoy the, the, the music predominantly. And I still think, you know, this is the irony of my career. I still, I think I would get the hairs on the back of my neck would, would rise much more effectively from music than they ever would standing in an art gallery or looking at a good photo or a good painting. Um, I do love the fact that um, I was able to make a career in a field that I, like Dane was saying, I feel blessed to do what I do. Um, and very lucky, any young art student that says, how do, we, how do I get to do what you do? And I, you know, I have to be a bit glib about it and say, you have to be in a band on the same label as a, a soon to be, you know, uh, very successful 
a rock band like Rush. Yeah. You know, because timing, time, you know, you, they say you make your own luck, but that, that's partially true. I think luck also befalls some more than others. There's also hugely talented, as we all know, hugely talented musicians out there that don't even know how to, you know, don't even know how to get the break they deserve. You know, they right. don't know. Right. They don't know and never part. figure it out. No, yes. they don't. Right. Um, my good friend Phil Narrow, for example, in Toronto, phenomenal singer. He grew up with Lou Graham in, in Rochester. And Phil can, he, he does a lot of uh, gigs at uh, uh, Alex Lifeson's club called The Orbit Room. And you go and see a Led Zeppelin night, and he's a dead ringer for plant in terms of his chops, his vocal chops, or he'll just do a classic rock night, and suddenly Roger Daltrey's coming off the stage, or, or wow. Steve. Steve Perry, this guy is a chameleon and a super, super talent. But, you know, Lou Graham happened to meet Foreigner, you know, and, and, and the disparity between the two of them is is just very telling. Right. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, I think you're very, you really are onto something when saying, it's it's not just luck. It has to be the right place at the right time. It has to be the connections that you've built up through a career that all kind of snowballs together that makes something like that happen. And, and it is incremental too, because when I was mm. when I was uh, in L.A. for my first time, um, I was sent down. But I actually was at Nimbus Nine Studios in Toronto, and this guy called Bob Ezrin <laughs> asked me to come down and meet with him at at his studio in, on Hazelton Lane in Toronto. And I went in, and he played this album which he'd been working on in England for 22 months and I remember hearing the album and thinking yeah this is really probably going to be a very successful album oh that was The Wall and uh, he said I'm just now working on a, a, an album for a local band and it was a band called The Kings and they had a big hit called Switch Into Glide and, yeah. and Zero, Zero was their main writer and singer and uh, when I heard the album, I thought this is really good too, and I thought, well, how, how generous of Bob to go from from the Floyd to a local band, and he sent me down to uh, to uh, Asylum Records to deliver this uh, album because back in those days you wouldn't be able to upload a, upload a JPEG. So I went down. The secretary and I went out to see Little Feet and, and Linda Ronstadt at the Forum that wow. night. Um, it was just my own taste, you know, and then being on La Cienega and Sunset, I thought, ooh, I could get used to this. And and then on my on my second trip down, I was delivering, uh, I went down actually at, at the invitation of the producer for Quiet Riot. And I was put in a really nice house and given a com convertible Mustang, and I was welcome to stay as long as I wanted. And, and during that visit, painting that cover i find out that the producer's ex-wife happens to be trudy green who managed this guy called david coverdale and it just it was just one thing after another and then through this on the strength of david and myself and meetings with john kaladner who's the legendary a and r man from from uh geffen my visit for six weeks with the intention of going back to toronto was met with you know a chorus of why are you going why are you leaving you should be here and then so six weeks turned into 16 years. Wow. Prior to all the stuff that you've done, tell us a little bit about like your, you know, the album artwork that sticks out to you as a fan, like when you, that you saw, like I mentioned earlier, like you saw in the store. Um, and then talk a little bit about the artwork you've done and which ones you're maybe proudest of or, or some that you're most proud of. 
Well, I'm proud of all mine. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. No, actually, Next question. <laughs> no, that's that's actually you know, Neil Neil from Rush and I used to talk about how you can't undo history. You can't uncut hair. You can't shave off handlebar mustaches and dispense with that billowing kimono that you thought was cool at the time. And, and I refer to Rush's attire at a given point in their career. I've also done covers where, you know, my aspirations, my, my appetite sort of outstripped my, uh, uh, well, actually my, my, my hunger outstripped my appetite. I was, you know, my skill set now is, is infinitely different from what it was then. And, you know, admiring the hypnosis company and, and admiring a lot of projects by Storm and his crew. Um, right. Storm Thorgerson, uh, you know, I, I aspired to that kind of improbable reality, that look and feel. And, and I look back on covers that, and, and I liken it to the time when I first saw the blind faith cover with it, the young girl and the crow British version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and when I, when I look at that, it's a very poorly hard cut edge on the, on the hair and the, and the chromium, uh, hood ornament or plane in her hand but it still sticks out it's got a lot of impact and a lot of people talk about my hemispheres the same way but i i look at it as abysmally you know uh, it's a technically quite quite short of what i could do now so currently doing box sets with the band for the 40th anniversary box sets i get to go back in and it's like remixing. You know, I go back in and. Oh, you're going to touch things those up? Are, for some those time? are yeah. super cool. I mean, the, the, the one yeah. that came out for uh, Permanent Waves is, is. I love that album anyway, but that the, yeah. the artwork's so cool. I mean, I it's love the original artwork. Stuff, but man. The new stuff yeah. is. Yeah, Thank it's so cool. But what's interesting about it is that when you do a box set, you get, I mean, you know, I finally kind of squared off is because, again, not being a huge Rush fan, which is a super ironic f feature of my life, um, even though I played on four of their albums and I was very, very close with the boys and was, you know, delighted to be a part of their trajectory and their career and, and really appreciated their loyalty and friendship. Um, doing, um, d doing the work that I've done for them, didn't didn't make me a fan, so I wasn't really digging into the lyrics and becoming a rush. A true rush fan is a breed unto his uh, unto themselves, um, and I didn't really dig into the lyrics because back then, like we were saying earlier, it's a sleeve and an inner sleeve. When the twelve inch platform uh, stepped aside for the CD, we all lamented the loss of the twelve inch canvas. But then it suddenly became evident to me with a band like Rush. They're not doing eight-page booklets. They're doing twenty-page booklets, and they're mm -hmm. doing 20, and eventually forty-page booklets. So suddenly, I was able to say, "Well, let's 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 delve into the lyrics and harvest the imagery from the lyrics and create something that's a nice experience as you leaf through the book." So the same thing is happening now with the revisitation to twenty-one twelve in nineteen seventy what seventy-seven or something. I didn't really listen to all those lyrics from that epic that epic side, but when I took it upon myself to sort of do this 44-page hardcover book that comes with the packaging, I thought, well, this might be interesting to read through the lyrics. And I did. And sure enough, it's rich with imagery that you know, spawned the, the, the creation of a whole new set of artworks that that I could bring out 40 years later. So it, it, yeah. was, an, it was an opportunity to play. 
Well, and it's kind of the old adage is, you know, what's old is new again. And I think that we live in this time where, you know, vinyl in 2019, you know, far outsold um, CDs and, you know, people aren't just fans. They're super fans now. And um, they want everything by those acts and they want stuff, even if it's old music, they want it redone. So it sounds cleaner and crisper and different and they want new visual i mean there's still there's a there's there's a larger i think for a while there was underestimated the importance of that experience for the music fan Mm -hmm. the exciting thing is i feel like it's 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 roaring back in a big way or else if it wasn't you wouldn't be doing some of the things that you are doing and and i'm fortunate to that point i'm also fortunate that i'm working with a couple of bands that have been around, around long enough that unlike, say, my daughter, who barely knows what a CD is, um, you know, living in the Spotify and iTunes world that we do, um, having a, a couple of major kind of acts still, as we, and I, I use this phrase all the time, as we feed on the carcass of what used to be the music business, you know, <laughs> bands like Dream, Dream Theater. It's true. I know it's true. Um, <laughs> Dream Theater and Rush, you know, they all, they long enjoyed the feel of paper, the smell of ink, and just, you know, the tactile experience of having a package, you know. And other bands I meet, they just say, can we get a piece of art? Because we're going to use it. We're just doing a digital EP we're going to do, you know. And I don't dispense with those opportunities. They're still a good title to me is the the genesis of a good, you know, a good sure potential image i never I, I was i was always spoiled by neil because his 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 the wordsmith that he was um he, he never came up short with a good title signals permanent waves moving pictures uh you know counterparts all these titles just were so profound and you know rich with potential so we had some that and the band was extraordinarily um true to their adage that they deviate from the norm they always move forward they do something they dare to be different um even though sometimes sometimes i found their tracks a little bit the same in in Mm -hmm. in in arrangement and timbre but tell us about your first attended concert and then your your first personal paid gig all right in a band or as an artist because there's two fronts to that you can do both yeah (laughs) well well, I played in pubs, like I said, at age 13 doing cover tunes. So um, even though we got paid minimally, I know it was a treat to me to say I got a pint of Newcastle Brown Ale. And so that was payment in kind for, for what it was worth. But I was, again, only 13. Um, I was hitchhiking in Toronto uh, when I was about, I think, 18 mm-hmm. after I'd come back from England. And someone picked me up and just we started chatting. He says, so what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I, I brazenly and, you know, with the, the uh, arrogance of youth, I said, I'm an artist, you know. And he said, oh, great, because I'm, uh, I'm the, the publicist and I'm working with the Toronto Symphony. We're looking for someone to do some pamphlets and brochures for us. Right. And what, we want to depict the string section and the, and the brass section and the, the percussion section. And so we're going to be doing five... Uh, five folios and I said great so what do you have in mind he said well um, what, what do you what would you charge and I said and this is where I remembered my dad once telling me don't be afraid to charge which right. is the, it, it struck me as an odd thing to hear but he, he said you know art is like pedigree if, you, if, if and, and I you know it's almost 
shameful that I'm admitting this, but he was a, a good source of advice on this, that you ought not to be afraid to kind of charge what you think you're worth. And sure. And that's, that's never been, uh, that's never served me badly. Um, but I, I blurted out, I was, I was young. I said, oh, maybe 500 each. And I really thought that I've, I've lost, <laughs> I've lost that gig. And right. he said, that, that sounds fair. So that was the first time I made $2,500 for, for doing pencil drawing for the next three weeks, you know? Nice. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a, that was a real gig. Um, so. so one last question, Hugh. What was your first concert that you attended as a fan? Um, the Rolling Stones in Sunderland, England, at the theater near the Roker, uh, the Roker Lighthouse. There was a theater right near the Roker Lighthouse on the on the, the north shore of the North Sea. Okay, and, and I couldn't hear a thing. It was. It was <laughs> There were two. I don't know if you if you know if there's a product in the U.S. called Trainer, but there were columns, like like you would be if you were a band yeah. in your teens and you could rent some columns for your first high school gig. That would be your PA. Well, these I guys. A, I remember trainers. Yep. Hmm. Well, there were two trainer columns on each side of the stage, and the, it was Brian. The band, Brian was in the band at the time. Of course, it was in 1964. So yeah, I saw the Stones and wow. uh, that's great. playing to 500 people, and I couldn't hear a thing because of the screaming. Wow. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for that that's trip down memory lane. That's fantastic, Andy. When did you first realize that uh, that you wanted to get into the music business? What was it about the music business itself that made you go, "Man, I want I, you know, I want to be part of this." Ironically, it's kind of like been my whole life. I remember performing for my parents, singing uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, and my mom clapping, really enjoying it and supporting it. Um, and I think, you know, just being a kid, li not just listening to music, what I, w I just didn't listen to it passively. I always kind of had this thing that I wanted to be a part of it. Um, okay. I didn't necessarily want to be a musician. I always call myself a hack drummer just because I like to make noise. Um, and I played in bands in college that weren't very good, but we had a great time. Um, but it was for me, um, I went to a small school in Indiana called Franklin College. And at the time, there was a um, what was called a CMJ reporting college radio station there a rock radio station and back in those days i was in college in the early 90s when everything was kind of blowing up in seattle and whatnot sure yep. and i i basically went in there there was a cool little studio and i found out it was a rock station and i found out that i could be the music director pretty early in my college career and more importantly i could get free cds and i could get free tickets to shows and so when I realized those two things, I was like, all I need now is free beer and I'm set <laughs> the for next four years. But so I got to program that station and be a part of that. And it really, um, I, I, I kind of just rolled up my sleeves and said, okay, I'm going to reach out to record label people. I'm going to reach out and, and just do whatever the heck I want to do. And it was, it was the, the thing that led me to Sunshine Promotions and led me to the concert promoter business and started to lay out the groundwork for my career um, and me realizing that ah, there's biz. I don't have to be a musician to be in this business. I want to be supporting musicians and promoting musicians and be on that side of it. And so that's, that's where I started. 
Did you ever want to manage? Did you ever want to? Yeah, manage? absolutely. I actually had the opportunity to manage a few bands um, in Indiana. I managed a band called The Elms, which Dane's familiar with for yep. about five years. And that's right. Um, some of my, honestly, I'm glad you asked that, Hugh, because I always tell people I learned so much by managing a band. Um, you learn how to be um, a professional babysitter. That's good. You, you, there you, you learn go. how you learn how to book shows. You learn how to work with record labels. You learn how to work with people like yourself on the creative side. And it's kind of like driving a car, but going in circles. Oh yeah. And, but the cool thing is, is that it's it's fun. And so. I some of my best memories in this business and some of the things I've learned the most are from managing bands. Um, so I yeah. think you touched That's... on something that I think is is germane to this whole thing. Whether whether you're treating a band as an art director with kid gloves or you are trying to counsel a band on good career decisions as a manager or or you are a producer. I've watched producers having to be very diplomatic with the way they approach sure. the tender the tender egos and the you know oh, the, every time i do it if i'm if i'm producing a an artist i mean you know they are they are they are the artist mm -hmm. you know no matter you know no matter what that really means it does mean that and if they're paying me to do that then that's my job to make them comfortable right yeah right but at the same time as you're making them comfortable, you you don't want to be their wrist. You you also no. you you want to say you want to be obviously it's it's ideal to be like a Bob Edwin or a George Martin or you know a Hugh Padgham or something like that where you're working with someone who's going to listen and is going to share some of that process. Otherwise, you become kind of a glorified engineer. So, yeah, I, they do have to respect you enough to whether you're a, trying to be the manager or the producer or whatever. Yeah. If you you have to have the respect of them to be able to do what you're going to do to make anything happen. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree. For any of us in whatever in any of those fields. Once you were once you were kind of in the middle of all that, Andy, um, who did you look to to be uh, like a, I don't know if it would be a mentor or, or somebody that you would uh, say, you know, this uh, look what uh, look what Brian Epstein did for the Beatles or, right. you know, is was there anyone in 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 the early days of you getting into this business that was like that kind of a mentor to you? Yes, absolutely. I, I think what I started to do when I was, even when I was in college, I started to realize kind of the breakdown of the industry, the labels, the promoters, the venues, uh, management, you know, uh, booking agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So I started to realize, okay, these are all the players. And being in, being in Indianapolis, there's not a lot of opportunities uh, to work in the music business. But I quickly learned through promoting shows and doing grassroots marketing street team stuff that sunshine promotions which was the heritage concert promoter in indiana at the time uh, before the big roll-up of promoters across the country um, i was like i gotta figure out who i can get in touch with at sunshine promotions and so um, that's what i did in college and even when i graduated my first job out of college had nothing to do with with music it was working in the state house for the auditor's office which was as awful as it sounds um, <laughs> i did that for two years but the thing that i did during that time was I kept doing street team work and kept volunteering with Sunshine 
And prior to um, me getting hired there, the, the gal that I knew really well there, she was moving to California and said, hey, this job's op- my job's opening up if you want to apply for it. And I'm like, of course I do. And so I went in and interviewed for it. And the guy who interviewed me, he came in. Uh, and I'll never forget it. I walked in and there was gold records hanging in the conference room and all these things, as just like I had imagined it, you know, great concert posters, et cetera. So I go in there yes. thinking I got to get out of this job at the state house. I hate it. And uh, the guy comes in and sets down a bottle of tequila in front of me and says, if you finish this, you can have the job. And he leaves the room. And I, uh, he came back about 20 minutes later, like literally like 20 minutes. I sat there. I come back and I didn't touch the bottle. And he looked at me and he said, well, why didn't you? You know, open the bottle, and I said, "You know, I, I, I don't like tequila." <laughs> That's what I said, and, and he, uh, and he said, "Well, I'm glad you didn't even open it." He goes, "I would never hire somebody that sat here for 20 minutes and drank tequila." <laughs> you know, I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, um, literally got hired, and like within my first 10 days was the first show at what was called Conseco Fieldhouse at the time, which was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yeah, And I love Bruce. Like he's, he, I love Bruce and a big fan, but anybody that, that knows Bruce, he, you know, he's, he's seeing, you don't always understand everything that he's saying, you know, in a live setting. And um, there was a lot of uh, media at the time about the sound and stuff. And I'll never forget. I, um, I was the PR guy. And I went into my boss's office at the time, and there was media out in the lobby to talk to me about the sound. And everybody was talking about, it's not our fault. It's not their, our fault. It's their fault. And I go into my boss, and I'm like, what, you know, talking a thousand miles an hour, what do I do? And he's listening to me just talking. And, you know, ABC is here, and NBC is here, and the Indianapolis Star is calling, and blah, 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 blah. blah. And uh, he listens to me, pats me on the back. He said, Andy, this is what we hired you for. Mm, you're in the hot the seat, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was my baptism by fire into wow. the um, into the music business, and I quickly realized during that time is that you know um, how many players there are. Everybody plays a role. It's still based on relationships, and you know even if it uh, you know, never point the finger at the other guy. <laughs> nobody wants nobody wants to be the fall guy, right? So you have to figure out a way to do the happy dance in those situations and keep everybody happy, which can be the biggest challenge sometimes in this business is keeping everybody happy. Well, that must have been the the moment with the Springsteen show, because I remember that was in 19. What year was that? 99, I think. Well, it was because we played there for on New Year's Eve. You guys did because our Harry Sandler. Yeah, Harry and Rocky went to the Bruce Springsteen show. They did. And Rocky remembered the sound being weird, so he made sure that there was extra speakers at our show. I during that time we did a bunch of shows. Like there was like Kid Rock and Billy Joel and a bunch of other shows. I specifically remember Rocky coming to the venue for like way early and like being at various points in the venue, like listening for sound stuff. Yeah. And that was when I met Harry Sandler for the first time, who was you know at the time was John's manager and, and. And may he rest in peace. Harry was a, a great friend of He's mine. A wonderful we, guy. We grew close over the years before his passing. But um, I remember that you guys, you guys rang in the year 2000, which we all remember was the buzz in, in the fall of 99 was Y2K. Right. How all of our computers were going to blow up, you know, or whatever was going to happen. Right. So you guys remember that, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I remember... Yeah. Doing a toast at midnight, looking around, going, mm-hmm. "Okay, we're all yep. still here." <laughs> <laughs> that clock's still working. Isn't that there the was most a clock, ridiculous you know? thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. taking away the time. So what was the first show? And if not the first, the most influential early show that you saw, mm-hmm. um, that you saw a live show. Well, kind of like you guys, I, I do, you know, there was, there was the early live shows that I remember as a kid going to that you know, I, I was just happened to be at, um, Frankie Valley and the four seasons played, uh, after a Pacers game when I was a kid and I, uh, you know, I wasn't necessarily a huge Frankie Valley fan, but my parents were, and I just remember the lights going out and then the, the spotlights coming on and me being kind of like, what is this, you know? As a kid, that's all I really remember about it, but I remember it enough to be like, you know, this is something else. The the first show that really mattered to me that I remember buying a ticket to was in 1988, was at the uh, Hoosier Dome. It was called the Monsters of Rock Tour, and it was Van Halen, um, who was supported at that time on that tour by uh, Scorpions, Metallica, Dokken, and a band called Kingdom Come. Um, who Hugh did the album artwork for. And yeah. I, I still had the T-shirt, Hugh, with your artwork on it that I bought at that show. Yeah. I don't even know why. I, I liked, I just liked the band name. I liked the artwork. Can and you honestly, squeeze into it, though? That's my question. I, I still can't. <laughs> I will wear it. <laughs> I'll wear it. You got to wear it the next podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I can, looking back, the irony of that show was is that it was promoted by Sunshine Promotions, who I eventually went to work for. But the tour was promoted by a guy named Louis Messina, and Louis is a legend in the concert business and uh, and have worked with his company over the years. He does a lot of big country acts like Kenny Chesney and whatnot. But um, it's just ironic that I was there as a fan, and, and little did I know at that time, but a lot of the people that worked on that show, I, ended up, I would end up bumping into down the road in, in my career. So That is yeah. ironic. It's a small yeah. world, especially yeah. the music business world. Yeah. But the first show that I worked on um, for work would have been the last shows at Market Square Arena, which was ZZ Top um, and Bad Company, I think, were toured. And then there was another show called The Anger. Not, no, it was called, I forget what it was. It was with that new metal. You guys remember it was like Limp Bizkit and Corn and that kind of stuff? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last few shows at Market Square Arena prior to the Springsteen thing. That was kind of my first week. Uh, oh, okay. All that stuff wow. kind of came together really quickly. You got thrown just like trial by fire. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. So of of all the shows that you've been involved with, there's been multitudes after that. What do you what do you feel like's the most important to you or the one that sticks out the most? Man, there's a bunch. Um I've been you know, I have, I always say there's, you know, there's, there's, it depends. Um, I can tell you one that you were at was a farm aid in Boston when I was managing the Elms. I remember standing on the side of the stage watching them perform. And I was standing by Elliot Roberts, uh, who um, is also deceased and he managed uh, Neil Young for years. Gotcha. But I was standing on the side of the stage watching the Elms with um, some of John Mellencamp's band, uh, Jacob Dylan, uh, the Wallflowers, who we shared a, a we shared a uh, dressing room with that day, uh, Willie Nelson um, mm. and Steve Earle. And I remember Elliot Roberts looked at me and he said, are these the guys from Indiana? And, and I said, yeah. And he said, they're great. You know, you need to stick with them. And that was a that was just one of those moments where kind of a pinch me moment because I'm a huge Neil Young guy. So I, I yeah. definitely knew who Elliot was, you know. Yeah. Um, but some others, I mean, uh, show-wise, I mean, you know, I've had the opportunity to work on Paul McCartney shows, which, of course, 
was always a mind blow for me personally. Um, I, when I worked on the Rolling Stones show at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, was it was the Stones, uh, and obviously a common denominator for all of us here is the Stones, right? No question. Um, Hello. Yeah, but I, I got to spend uh, almost an hour with Mick Jagger that day and talking to him, and that was beyond fascinating. And um, and that was a, a career highlight just to spend time talking to him uh, prior to that show and uh, talk about a talk about uh, you know it's one of those moments where you're looking over to the person you're talking to and they're sitting three feet away and you're having a conversation and you say to yourself during that time. I, I can't believe I'm sitting here having a conversation with Mick Jagger. <laughs> I would, <laughs> you know yeah, I'd I mean? have been slapping myself over yeah. and over going, really? Is this? Wow. Yeah. And I, and I was certainly dorky during that because I walked in and uh, he was in a big room back at the, one of the, one of the um, garages that they're at the IMS. So huge, you know, and I walked in and he said, you must be Andy, you know, in his, in his voice. And, and then stupidly out of my mouth comes, you must be Mick. <laughs> You know, like what a stupid yeah. thing to say. I think no matter what, you you know, with a situation like that, you're going to feel right. awkward, especially at first. But Yeah, but, uh, you know, I mean, those to me are some highlights. But and now I get to take my kids to shows and see their reactions to things. And, you know, it, which is super, super fun, as you guys have experienced as well. So it just all depends on, you know who you're into and and whatnot you know well that's pretty I, I, hard to beat if you got one of the beatles and the, and the stones uh that's, right that's that's top tier i think well, well and i'll tell you too like the paul mccartney there is i was i had the opportunity to actually meet him um when he had come through the field house one time and i chose not to go in with the person that said hey you could come in with us if you want and at the time i was like of course it'd be cool to you know have a picture with paul and share it with everybody but i i made the conscious decision at that time like i don't i'm, I'm not going to go there and, I'm, and in hindsight i'm glad i did because it, as a fan of music and in this business it, it is nice to have certain people still kind of out there that you haven't met you know in some ways and i know that can sound crazy but it is kind of nice i think just to have some that you're like i'm still just a fan man i'm as close as I, i've been close enough he came off the stage and gave me a thumbs up one time that's close enough for me so when we were out with bob dylan and willie nelson on the baseball tours of 2009 uh there was a softball game between dylan's band and our band and uh I played first inning and I, inning and I was sitting, I had my buddy of mine who lived close by sitting on the, the bench there. And he goes, look up there, man, Bob's here. And sure enough, you know, it's, it's summertime. Bob's up there in a stocking cap and uh, Dylan's hanging out, you know, watching the game. So he had a, uh, he had a guitar tech named Zick who introduced the guys in Mellencamp's band to Mr. Dylan that day. So he's just sitting up there in the bleachers and, he just kind of holds his hand out and just kind of, you know, you just shook it. Hey, no, hey. Mm -hmm. he didn't really say anything. He just held his hand out there. So you just kind of, so I shook it. It was just odd, but uh -huh. I said, Dylan's hand. And we were sitting there and my friend was barely able to be cool. So, you know, we've each got a Corona or something and he kind of drops his bottle 
and it was in metal bleachers and it was like <laughs> of course he does. come yeah. on man uh, be cool yeah and, you know now now bob kind of looked over and you know now i see the manager guy kind of looking <laughs> over and i just going man <laughs> uh, it's like the loudest i don't want to be uncool okay the drummer's got some uncool dude yeah. with him great fantastic i had one of those moments where i just it was a, a him and a him and a moment where i just couldn't talk i was on a boat with dylan uh johnny hartford vassar clements the uh, the violinist um and uh joni mitchell going over to the mariposa folk festival because i was working with luke gibson at the time he used to be with a band called luke and the apostles and uh i was on the way over to the mariposa folk festival and there was joni you know lady of the canyon and i just wow. i just wow. had that and my one elevator ride in the the uh, mayfair region in new york it was a very long ride, silent ride with frank zappa <laughs> oh wow i just could apart from nodding and that's and, great I've got a Dylan story from he was playing in Indianapolis one time downtown and uh, I just so happened to be backstage at the time talking to the production manager and um, he had told me a lot of Dylan's going to be he got radioed you know hey Bob's here you know and so they pull in backstage and there's a bunch of policemen that were waiting probably like nine or ten of them and they had their you know they had their carts and they had this full plan as soon as Bob pulls up we're going to put him in this golf cart we're going to take him up to the stage you go up this hill blah 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 they were ready to roll you know and so the the van pulls up and the uh, door opens up and charlie sexton i think got out a uh, guitar player and behind charlie was was bob and he had on an all white suit and a white cowboy hat looked as cool as you can believe you know and i'm standing there by the production guy and um the policeman nervously comes up and says, hey you know nice nice to meet you, mr dylan and uh you know we, we, we've got a plan for you we're gonna put you in this cart right here and we're gonna drive around that building and drive up there to the stage and and then you can you can go ahead and you know do your sound check and we can you know he's just talking you know a thousand miles a minute and bob's just staring at him and um <laughs> and um and uh lets him finish and bob said is that the way the stage right there and he's pointing up over his shoulder and he said yes sir yes sir yes sir he said you can come on follow me and the guy takes off as if bob's supposed to follow him and so they go left to go get in their carts and bob just looks at him and then he uh walks right up the hill <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get in the carts and they're all you know just sitting in their carts watching him walk up the hill to the stage <laughs> it was funny. fantastic yeah that's like, great that's that's the way to the stage right there okay, okay. thanks <laughs> yeah great but uh you know those oh. moments are those moments are priceless and it's funny because those those are the things that that stick out and as time goes on it's not like you look back and say oh there was a meet and greet when i got to get this thing signed by so-and-so it's like those are cool and, and they matter to a lot of people and i'm not oh, knocking yeah. that but right. you know the the blessing of being in the industry a lot of times is just being there and well, seeing these people be people <laughs> that's all well thanks guys thanks for listening to the music Bye. Buzz podcast and um from dane and hugh and andy we uh, look forward to talking to you next time and um have a great one. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Buzz off. Buzz off. <laughs> I'm going to go get a buzz. I don't know about y'all. <laughs> <laughs>